welcome to a different episode of Killer Hangover this week. I need to be honest with you guys. This three kids thing is no joke. The baby is going through that oh-so-lovely five-month sleep regression, and I got way behind on editing this week. We were doing so well with sleep, but it is what it is, and I'm really sorry. But we don't want to leave you guys hanging. So this week, we wanted to give you a glimpse into what our lovely patrons get on Patreon. While on maternity leave last summer, our little baby break before the baby that never sleeps was born... Mom interviewed a retired detective, Ryan Runyon. Amazing stories, fun stories, and talking about stories, Mr. Runyon is also an author of three books. His most recent one, Tooth Key Killer, had me hooked from the very beginning. Very killer hangover-esque with a ghost and solving a crime with twists and turns. I'm just about finished and it's really good. But like I said, For this week's Killer Hangover episode, we're going to share with you Mom's interview with Ryan. He's got some great undercover stories, buying LSD, and his wife even pops on, giving her side of things, being married to a detective and all. And keep in mind, if you like what you hear, join us on Patreon. You can find the link in the description of this episode. Okay, okay, you've heard enough from me. Here's Mom's interview with Ryan Runyon. Cheers. Hello. Welcome to Killer Hangover for our Patreons. There's a dog in the background because I am right now interviewing Ryan Runyon, who has a fabulous background, but he is a retired detective, and that is why I wanted to interview him for you guys. And he also has some awesome stories to tell, too. Ryan is also an author. I have read two of his books. Fire High and Wheatland. You can get those on Amazon. He also has one in the making, and this one's given me a little heebie-jeebie when I read it, but that one is not out yet. It will be for you guys, and the title of it is The Tooth Key Serial Killer, and I'll tell you what, just a little insight. Anything that has to do with eyeballs or teeth just gives me the heebie-jeebies, so. But I'm not graphic in it, and I did kind of shorten the title. Now it's just called The tooth key killers okay yeah still anything has to do with pulling teeth just not my thing as i said ryan is a retired detective but he has quite a history it kind of started as far as the police side of it he was actually a patrol safety officer in third grade is that not correct yeah we used to have like a little sash with a little badge on it safety patrol officer it was in uh, royal oak michigan so I used to like, you know, stop the kids and let them know in the cross when it was safe. Um, you were so cool. <laughs> I wish I had a picture of that. like a little little belt here. And I can always be late for homeroom because, you know, I'm the safety patrol officer. I got to turn my belt and my badge into the principal. So. Yeah, I'm sure most of us knew one of those nerds when we were in school. <laughs> well, it wasn't a nerd. You entered the Army at age 17. Correct. Made your mother sign the papers, from what I understand? Yeah, so uh, we'll say I had a, kind of a turbulent uh, home life. So my parents were divorced, and, and uh, things weren't so great in school or at home. So I joined the Army, and uh, my mom wasn't going to sign the paperwork because I was 17. I said, well, Mom, if you don't sign, I'll just run away. You'll never see me again. So she signs it. <laughs> of so. course she did. Oh, And you joined the 82nd 
airborne. Now, I think this is kind of funny because Ryan is afraid of heights. But I didn't know that at the time. Um, I went to jumps. And uh, from what you said, you closed your eyes until the chute opened. Well, the first jump, I mean, obviously you're excited because I kind of never jumped before. So the first time I had my eyes open, but then I, when I'm out there and like looking down, I'm like, holy crap, what am I doing out there? <laughs> I can't imagine one thing I have never wanted to do. I couldn't, oh no. So I always tell my kids I had night jumps with my eyes closed going out the door. <laughs> now once the chute opened up, I felt okay. I mean, I just waited until I saw the tree line. Then I would look down and do my uh, PLF. So you got out of the military at that point after three years. Correct. And you went back and finished high school at 20 years old. Correct. And then you went on to work in the oil fields of Oklahoma. Yeah, the city's like Elkwood or Elk something. So, I mean, it was actually pretty good money back then, but it was kind of dangerous. And I noticed a lot of the guys had like some fingers missing. So <laughs> it's like, it's not the job for me, even though the pay was good. So then I found a recruiter and I said, put me back in the army. So how long were you there in the oil fields? Oh, just a few months. Just a few months. Maybe about four or five months. And I'm looking at you. You have so all you have your fingers, fingers so yeah. that's good. Okay. So you joined the army again, and after four years, you got out and applied to the RCPD, which is the Riley County Police Department, and also two other departments. Yeah, it was uh, El Paso Police because I was stationed at Fort Bliss, and I also applied for Los Alamos, New Mexico. So I took the test first with RCPD, and then when it all came back, uh, I was like the number four guy. They only hired three. And then actually I was offered the job at El Paso, but at that time it was kind of a violent city and the pay wasn't all that good. Luckily, Los Alamos called me up and then when I uh, interviewed and, and then spoke to the, uh, the chief on that one, I took that job. Okay, and this is the one I kind of want you to talk to me about just a little bit. You were undercover. Yeah, so uh, let's just say that I had a familiarity with the uh, narcotics as a kid growing up. So they want me to work uh, undercover, mostly in Santa Fe, uh, Española, and uh, Los Alamos as well. So it's kind of like a tri-area uh, drug task force. Okay. And you said deep undercover. Now, what's the difference? Well, they set me up with an ID card. So I had an alias. I had an apartment uh, in Los Alamos that I really never lived in. And they also gave me a car to use to, to drive to do my uh, drug buys. Now, being deep undercover, I also had some handlers. I had Detective Sergeant from Santa Fe and one from Los Alamos as well. So they would always either have me wired up uh, when I made my buys. And then we had like an intel guy in Santa Fe. So for like Santa Fe, he would gather up all the intel and then preside the information to my detective sergeant, and then we'd go ahead and, and make the buys. So just being undercover, is that like a one-time thing, and deep undercover is more of a well, lifestyle thing, or what's the difference? Well, the, the difference is it's like having a dual life. I mean, I couldn't even associate with any of the police officers in either Los Alamos or Santa Fe at that time. So even when I got paid and actually would have my evidence, uh, I'd have to meet, like I had a tennis court that I'd meet my detective sergeants with and then I'd pass over the evidence from the buys and then my reports and then they would hand me my paycheck as well. Wow. Wow. Okay. So I couldn't associate with anybody, which I kind of felt bad for Sharon because she couldn't associate with any of the uh, police officers and pretty much she was kind of like on her own. That's right. She were married at this yeah. time. And we had, uh, she was pregnant and we had a young daughter. Oh my goodness. But could you talk to her? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still, I'd come home to my normal apartment. I just never stayed at the other apartment. So I had to meet somebody and discuss narcotics, whatever. We'd go to my drug apartment is what I call it. And then I had an alias name, too. Now, I kind of used part of my name, and I did that intentionally. So if somebody said, hey, John, 
I mean, I know that they're referring to my alias and then not my real name. So my alias name had part of my real name in it. Okay. I just won't say which it was. But. Right. All well, right. I guess I'll just say the first name was Rick. Rick. Okay. There you go. So you did that for how long? About eight, eight nine months. And then there was a lot of court that went on afterwards and then I had to go to the academy. In New Mexico at that time, yeah, you have up to a year before you go to the academy, or that you could have up to a year before they send you to the academy. So even though I still had to qualify with a weapon and then learn some of the basic laws, and I actually went to narcotic school with the New Mexico State Police, so they taught me how to smoke, how to uh, like <laughs> pretend like I'm sniffing cocaine. Yeah, they give me like a little spoon. And like, when you take that cocaine, the spoon, you like, yeah. right at the last second, you flip it. So like, when you snort it, really? you know, the cocaine's falling down and it's not going up my nostril. Really? So I, I actually had to learn some other trick. And they taught you how to smoke? Yeah, so I, you'd like, you know, inhale and kind of hold it. You wouldn't take it into your lungs and then, of course, kind of blow it out. So yeah, they, they taught me how to trick smoke. Oh, my goodness. Because <laughs> you got these drug dealers. I mean, they light up a joint and you, obviously you got to smoke You've got to smoke it with them. Yeah. And cocaine or too. Or like, snort it with them. Or like if you got a guy that's like selling you some cocaine and he says, taste it. And of course, then I pull out my little spoon. and <laughs> Pull out your handy dandy spoon. <laughs> and make sure I flip it. <laughs> And I would take your um, analysis test once a month, and I always was clean. To make sure that you really weren't... Yeah, that wasn't doing narcotics. Well, there was, there was one case, so uh, it was in Santa Fe, to where uh, when he opened up the bindle with his knife, he thought I was a narc, and of course he puts the knife to my throat, and he says, taste it, and that's the one time where... Oh, you really had to... I really did taste it, really and actually to. my handler was supposed to be like monitoring my wire and I gave the code word to where I'm hoping like the cavalry would come in and at that time he didn't show up. So when I'm leaving the back part of this guy's yard which is a, has a high fence on it, I walk over to where his uh, vehicle's parked at and I'm like, I won't use his real name, I'm like, Tom, where were you? And actually I'm kind of mumbling because my, my tongue is just numb. Uh -huh. I said, um, I had to taste cocaine and he gets all upset like, you can't do that. And I said, you put a knife to my throat, what do you want, you know, what do you want me to do? As I'm kind of mumbling, what it was is, where he was parked at, there was a gal that he was talking to, so he was away from his car, oh, no. chatting with her. Yeah. Uh, now, then we go to the uh, grand jury, and I tell the story, because we actually charged this person with the aggravated assault on a police officer. And I know mm -hmm. one of the questions that came up is, well, did you identify yourself as a police officer? It's like, no. No, <laughs> because he would have been, would've been dead. He would have been stabbed. No kidding. So, so that was the only time I actually tasted cocaine. Well, you have In this my life. Cool. You have this really cool little verbiage that I like, and it's called what you call God crumbs. Correct. And I think you had a few God crumbs, from what I understand, when you were working narcotics. I believe so. Can you can you just give us an idea of? I like the toilet one and the <laughs> and the hole in the wall one. Well, the uh, the toilet one is. We'll just say that there was a. Uh, I made a, a purchase of a certain item. And of course, then we get a search warrant for the house. And as we're doing the search warrant, we're finding all this product all over the house. And, and my partner, and I'll just use Tom as a fake name for all of my partners. So Tom's talking to the, uh, the suspect, and, and the suspect's not really saying much, if anything. Obviously, we got product all over the place, but we couldn't find any money. So we're pretty much wrapping things up. And then Tom says, hey, uh, run, you go tell the other guys that we're getting ready to leave. And so when I, and this, the garage is kind of like a door from the house to the garage. So there's no like separation between the garage and the house. Okay. Door. So when as I walk into the garage, I look to the right and I see this toilet in the corner. And I'm like, there's a toilet wow. in the garage. 
through the toilet garage. <laughs> and then some of those guys were like, hey, Lenny, we've already searched all that. It, it's, it's okay. But I'm curious anyway. So I actually lift up the lid and I find the money box. And so still being kind of a rookie police officer, I'm all excited. I'm like, oh my God, I found the treasure. <laughs> so I go run into the house saying, Tom, look, look what I found. I found the money box. And now you're... So my instincts, I mean, for whatever reason, I, just, I guess I can call that God crumbs because it's like going to the house and I just see that toilet and I just had to open up the lid. A little voice some, and some just made me open up that lid and and something made you just lean against a wall yeah so this would have been like a different case to where again I buy some product and then of course we we get a search warrant and we're searching the residence so actually kind of a wall and something else so we're not really finding much of anything I think we found like scales and that's about it and then so there's a speaker in this one room and the um, like the base or that cover of the speaker was like blown out and for whatever reason well, I'll call it a God crumb. I just put my hand down there and I'm pulling out this big old bag of Voila. It's like, oh, there you go. And then so now, obviously, the uh, the subject that's being arrested, you know, he's on the couch and he realizes that we found some cocaine. And then there's like this tapestry up on this wall. So as I go ahead and, and lean up against the wall, I kind of fall through the tapestry. <laughs> and There was like a, a hole in that wall to where other stuff was in the other side of the apartment so it's almost like having two apartments and one is being used for narcotic stuff and and the other apartment would have been like the living quarters if you think about it had you been just a few inches one way or the other you would not have seen the hole you would not have felt the hole it it was a big rug i mean you just leaned against that exact spot where you needed to it's It's almost like uh, also bought some uh, lsd so there was this kid that apparently got in trouble with the law and he agreed to cooperate and had this LSD dealer. And of course, this guy was selling a lot of LSD. And so I was gonna buy 500 hits. Well, I didn't have any money on me. We were gonna do a, what they call a buy bust. So I had the Santa Fe police, not to say Santa Fe police, outside this guy's apartment. So you had Santa Fe police up on the roof where the fire escape's at. And then you had Santa Fe police in the hallway. So all I had to do is give the signal and they were gonna come in. Well, so now this, this guy gives me like many sheets of LSD and they're supposed to be like 500 and the reason why I wanted to buy 500 uh, there was a concert in Albuquerque and I was going to sell this LSD this is my excuse I was going to sell this LSD at this concert which okay. is why I was buying so much so then he hands me all these sheets of LSD and then so then I'm counting like one two and he goes what are you doing I said well I'm gonna make sure you got 500 hits he goes you are a narc and right about that time Santa Fe trying to like bust into the, this this door, and this guy has such a hard, thick door they couldn't break in. Oh no! And so this kid, I was worried about this kid because he was with me as well. So I felt that he might have been in danger because this, we'll say, Tom went to go grab a uh, like a fork. I guess he's looking for something, and so I thought he was going to either hurt me or hurt this kid. So I go running into the kitchen and unlock the uh, the doors so the Santa Fe police can come in to make the bust. So now I'm holding on, to, and actually we're fighting over this LSD too. So this guy that sold, sells it to me, he's trying to take the asset from my hand, and of course we're like fighting back and forth. Yeah. And that's when I break away and unlock the door. And so then my sergeant detective says, "Running, where's the LSD?" And I said, "Well, it's in my hand," and I'm holding like this, and he goes what drop that and he goes drop it so i'm like dropping all those sheets of lsd i'm like why he goes because the stuff gets absorbed in your skin he goes now go sit on that couch and we're gonna watch don't move so i'm sitting on this couch so while they're making the arrest and they're searching and they're taking care of this kid and getting him out of the way as well every like 20 minutes tom would come up to me and say how you feeling i feel normal <laughs> so, it, so it never hit you so it never got as we stated a little earlier ryan was married through all this and we have the fortunate time to 
be here with Sharon, his wife, who just walked in, who is also one of my friends. She, well, she lived through all this also. So I kind of wanted to ask her, Sharon, hello, first of all. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for adding your little tidbit. Oh, any time for you, anything for you and Ryan. <laughs> you ask how old she was at that time. Yeah, you're like 19 or 20. Well, I know I it's not easy being... A military wife that I know from experience as sure. you know also mm-hmm. now a policeman's wife is also not easy but let's go to the days of undercover how is that scary very lonely so d- how often did you see Ryan during those times mm, I saw him every day chats it's me and chats as she was my social butterfly <laughs> bug anyway so she was she and Josh are 21 months apart, so I was pregnant with our oldest son, Joshua, at the time while he's going through all this. And so, oh, Chastity was probably 20 months, so she wasn't quite two yet. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So anyway, but as oddly as this may sound to some moms, she was my sanity. <laughs> really? Yeah, because she, we, we would go walking together, obviously. Can't leave her home. <laughs> But anyway, we'd go walking together, and we would go to the store, go shopping, and we'd go down into Santa Fe and drive around. It probably kept your mind off of the reality of what Ryan was going Mm -hmm. through also. Yeah, and I could still talk to my family back here. So my mom and dad kind of knew a little bit what was going on, because they were going to come and stay with me um, when I had Josh. Uh-huh. But you remember the one time that you and I were in the store together, and you remember what someone had said when they saw me? No. They said, Rick. Now do you remember what happened? They asked, they asked who you were, and I said, well, that's my sister. Because <laughs> I wasn't married undercover. I mean, I was a single man, so we're in the store. Was it Los Alamos or Santa Fe? Oh. Santa Fe. We didn't shop in Los Alamos. When we were together, we were never in... Lost almost. We were always in Santa Fe. Yeah, so they see us shopping in the store, and they said, Rick. And so that's when I turn around, and, well, who's that? I'm like, well, that's my sister. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I forgot about that until just now. Do you, and now that reminds me, do you remember when we went and ate in Espinosa? Do you remember that? Oh, my Lord, that's, that's a rough city, but yes. But do you remember, because we couldn't go out as a couple so right. we tried to go where he wasn't doing any business so to speak anyways we went and we ate there and he was like nervous the entire time I'm just sure. like looking over his shoulder sure well i did make a buy off somebody in Espan. i did make a buy off somebody in espanola so i was kind of worried about that so it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a clean town for me i just can't imagine on both ends i just i just you must have been just scared for him Mm-hmm. The whole time. I don't know. It's kind of like um, everybody always asked me when he was even a police officer, did I ever worry? And I, I just never. Mm, you're, you're scared because you know about other people, but knowing that I trusted him and I just felt he would be safe. Yeah. So I never had the fear that he would never come back to me. Nicely put, Sharon. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> and, I, and actually, I was so good at being undercover, so the guy that did my interview... Oh! 
I'll mention his first name is Brent. So he did my background check before I got hired. And so now I got like long hair and I'm looking like a dope. I was wondering whether your appearance and had to change. He stopped me. And my taillight was out in the car that they gave me. <laughs> and so and I had some drugs in the back of the trunk. So oh, remember that story with Brent when he stopped me? And so he wanted to do a search of this vehicle and he didn't know who I was. I mean, he saw my ID card of Rick and whatever the name was. So I had a, a good ID card. You could run it and it still showed that I was valid. Uh-huh. But he would not, uh, I wasn't going to give him consent to search because like, oh my God, he's going to find stuff. And then we're really going to sit there and be like, my ID will be, or my undercovers Cover. will be, will well. be known. Mm-hmm. And so afterwards, I called up uh, my handler that she had mentioned. We'll just say his first name was Tom. Uh-huh. I said, Tom, uh, Brent stopped me and just let you know that uh, they ran me. <laughs> so we always had a chuckle about that. So did that was she, the one time I got stopped by the police. Did you tell them that Brent was the one who did it? Well, his last name. I'm not going to, but that he did your initial interview. Yeah, he for did the, my interview. He just didn't even recognize because I had some. He didn't there. even recognize him. Didn't recognize me. In fact, afterwards, when I came out from undercover, I said, "Brent, you remember that old uh, Biscay? I drove a Biscay." I said, "You remember that Biscay? You stopped our tail light out." He goes, "Yeah, that was me." <laughs> <laughs> and you damn right, you weren't going to search my trunk. <laughs> and then when is when he came out from undercover, Brent's wife and I became the best of friends. And we're still friends. And we, we were at a baby shower and um, she looked at me she said this whole time I said yes this whole time and she said I would have come and we could have been friends I said but but you could that, that can happen Sharon well thank you for that Sharon. side of the whole thing well at least talk about the how I actually came out with the uh, the domestic case that happened at the apartment complex I guess then I'll have Sharon tell her part of the story so I'm getting ready to come out and so they put alarms <laughs> in my apartment so I have like an alarm on my doormat to where if you step on it it sends a uh, radio transmission to the Los Angeles police you had that at, you had that in our apartment yeah, see that's how oblivious I was Tom set it up <laughs> anyway so if you would step on it it sends a transmission to the PD saying hey officer Runyon needs help blah 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 so mm-hmm. I'm sleeping on the couch. Sharon's back in the bedroom sleeping, and I just and I'm in my hospital scrubs, and I just hear. Did I have Josh yet? No, you were still pregnant. Why did you have hospital scrubs? Just a question. Um, my sister was a nurse, so I, I think <laughs> okay. scrubs are cool. They are super comfortable. <laughs> I have a pair also. <laughs> we won't we won't tell the story about my motorcycle and scrubs. Okay, well. you're getting distracted. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so I hear the scream. I mean, it's a horrible crash and a scream, and I open up the door and I can see this this woman being dragged down these metal steps, and so. I I grabbed my badge and, and my they gave me like a little 38 pistol that I used and I just go run it I actually yelled to Sharon said call 911 I said this gal's being thrown down the uh, the stairs and so if you can imagine this guy holding this his wife's hair and he's pulling her down the steps oh God, I put awful. the gun to him and I got my badge in my left hand I said drop her and so he does let go of her hair and she just like thud mm, on the metal that. steps all the way downstairs but there's a guy down below in the bottom apartment and I said sir can you help her please and I go taking this my gun and I'm telling this guy upstairs and then I had him sit in the corner of the landing and I was just waiting for the police to arrive so mm-hmm. I just got the gun at him he looks at me goes I thought you were a narc I said no I was an undercover cop I mean they actually thought I was a narc when I was living there <laughs> so Finally, the police arrive, and they don't even know who I am. I mean, they see this this guy with a gun and a badge and scrubs. And I'm uh-huh. like, hey, I'm Officer Runyon. I'm undercover with your department. He just threw his wife out the window and dragged her down the stairs. <laughs> oh, so now, here's Sharon's side of the story when she's the one making the calls and seeing all this. Go ahead. You had me call 911. I was scared because you're going outside with a gun, for starters. 
Well, um, you can see what's happening also, I though, didn't even, he, No, because I didn't go outside. Because I'd, I'm pretty sure I had just had Josh because my parents had just left. Because when my parents were there, he, you, Ryan was still undercover. So we would go up into the Bandelier Mountains. I mean, you really feel like nomads. We're going <laughs> up into the Bandelier Mountains where there are no people. <laughs> Anyways, but that's what we would do. So that nobody would see Ryan with us. Okay, so my parents had just left. So I just had Joshua. I had pretty big babies. So there was no mobility. <laughs> no, yeah, not I wasn't going anywhere. So plus because he went outside with a gun. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, and you, yeah. You know having watched all kinds of movies. All these little shootouts are going through your head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like oh my god. But just the idea that you hear. I did hear the glass break. Because he threw her through the window. I just can't imagine seeing seeing this happen. I'm happy you didn't see it happen. Yeah. And then I later, after all that had passed, later had done, because we didn't have washers and dryers in our apartments. It was the laundry mat was right across from us for the complex. So I had gone over there with Chastity and Brian was with Josh. um, And she, the abused wife, was right there. And she wouldn't even look at me. She wouldn't even talk to me. I mean, she acted like she was very angry. So, and th- that really bothered me for a while. Well, yeah. Because I thought, I just wanted to shake her. What are you doing? Get the hell out. But, but was, this is afterwards. After, after it happened with mm-hmm. her 100 and whatever stitches that yeah. she had to have. Mm-hmm. It was really sad. Mm-hmm. Very sad. We moved soon afterwards. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we, we definitely moved. And Los Angeles Police actually gave me a... Uh, moving money to help me move to a different place. Jeez, that's just scary and scary for your family. So I'm going to move on to when you came to Manhattan. Well, you know, Sharon's from Manhattan, so, and actually I just didn't feel safe in Los Alamos anymore. I mean, I definitely had a contract on me. I had, I used to get calls late at night saying, hey, running, there's a guy driving a black sedan, just let you know that he may be looking for you. And I, it got to the point where I told my, one of my sergeants, we'll just call him Tom, I said, Tom, don't call me about these things anymore. I just don't want to hear it. I'm done listening to these phone calls. I just want to be a patrol officer. So then I applied for a right of county police, and that time I got hired. So okay. <laughs> second time's a charm. <laughs> there you go. Not third, but second yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah. Those could be more god crumbs, dear. Well, there you go. And then a god crumb. Getting hired the second time. <laughs> Isn't that a god crumb? Okay. Now you have some, you have a lot of stories. I have to tell our listeners right now, I've been sitting here for probably about two hours listening to stories before we even started. And then my great friend Sharon made us a margarita. So that'll be your drink. That's because we're exiting New Mexico. (laughs) We're exiting New Mexico and coming into Kansas. So we've got to get some wheat beer now. (laughs) We've got to guzzle our margaritas and go to wheat beer. Now you were a, did you go straight into being a detective when you were here or no actually um so i went to new mexico police academy so i was certified so i get hired from riley county and i was on the swing shift so i was on swings probably for about four years that's kind of hard isn't it i mean as far as night day night day night day yeah but i get you get used to it i did have to do a year in agate I mean, at the time, Riley County demands that at least once in your career, you got to do at least a year at Aggieville. Aggieville is kind of fun. Our listeners, many of them don't know what Aggieville is. 
Aggieville is the little section that is beyond, that is not attached to K-State, but it's where the students go to have fun. And then I was known as the Pike Narc in Aggieville. One of the, there was a frat house that they all made a bust on something, we'll say in New Mexico. So my brother was a fraternity member, so he gives me his sweatshirt and of course some other things. And then as I'm going to these bars undercover with another patrolman who's now like the assistant director without giving his name we would like do the bars together and i'd be in my uh fraternity shirt and then i'd look at the kids that are drinking and you can see which ones are underage when the cops would come in when it's time for the cops to come in you can see the the ones that are underage hide their drink and i'd say that one there that one there and that one over there and so then now this is after the 18. yeah so this is like you had to be 21 to drink okay which is funny how you said that because i was could drink at 18 and I, so could sharon and so could i <laughs> just saying so i guess i must have busted somebody with the uh, fraternity that I had the shirt on because I remember going to city court one time and somebody yelled out, there's the, the fraternity narc. <laughs> so. Frat narc. Yeah. You were on the swing shift for four years, you said? No, well, it would have been like three years, because I did one year in, in Aggieville, so four years total before I went to investigations. They went to investigations. Now, do you have to apply for that or do they ask you to be on that? How, how does that work? Well, there was a case that I worked on patrol that I guess I got pretty good confession on this case and then uh, they asked me if I want to work uh, investigations, so I okay. said yes. All right, so is that a promotion then? Not really. <laughs> In TV it is. Well, now at Raleigh County, they got corporal ranks, and I always wanted to be a corporal. But <laughs> okay. Actually, when I did retire from Raleigh County, I even asked uh, Detective or, um, Director uh, Brad Schoen, because he wanted me to stick around for another five years. Because he was going to retire in five years. And like, I guess he liked me in the investigation. And I said, Brad, make me a corporal and I'll stay. Obviously, <laughs> that didn't said, work. Well, he said, well, there, there's no corporal positions yet. I said, well, then create one. Then make one. And then after I go to K-State Police, guess what? They get corporals. It's like, wow, happens after I leave. <laughs> Maybe it was a God crumb and you don't yeah, know it. <laughs> that's that's a reverse God crumb. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You don't know. Right. You, don't, you don't get to define God's crumbs. <laughs> that's right. So you have told me a few very, very interesting stories. One of them, I, if you don't mind, uh, if we can discuss it, is the one where a young woman was found outside of Manhattan and her baby. Uh, she had no identification on her whatsoever. I don't know if she was found naked or... But I, you had kind of talked to me about this case, and I just found it very fascinating how you finally identified her. And this is where I kind of think about we get crumbs. I mean, either you, you see it and you act on it or you miss it. And, and actually, it even goes back even further than her being buried. There was a case in Chicago to where a Korean store owner was killed. And one of the, uh, the suspects was a soldier out of Fort Riley. He had just gotten back from Iraq, so it would have been like 04, and he visits his uncle in Chicago, and they go ahead and rob this uh, Korean store. So anyway, these the uncle and the, uh, the soldier and his girlfriend come back to Manhattan, and they are hiding out at the Blue Valley Trailer Park. So we got information about them, and we're kind of watching the, the trailer park, waiting for a time to go ahead and, and make an arrest. And so we do finally do make an arrest on them. And so we've got the uncle and the nephew that are in our county jail, plus the girlfriend, because a lot of the uh, clothing items that she stole from the store were inside the trailer. And so I remember they were bringing some uh, Chicago detectives to do the interviews on the uncle and the nephew. And I believe it was Grubbs, at, Captain Grubbs at the time. And I think he said, Runyon, 
uh, don't interview these guys. The Chicago cops are coming. But he never said anything about the girlfriend. So <laughs> I actually bring the girl up. And I do the interview. And she does admit that she was there. And she saw the, the shooting and the and robbery go down. But in her words to me is, uh, running, I was shopping. And actually, if you watch the video, she's got one of those big carts. And she's just going down the aisles. And she's just putting Throwing clothes. things in. Just putting clothes She on. was shopping. Yeah, she was shopping. And then so when we uh, actually went inside her trailer to do the search, I mean, all those clothes that you see on the video were in her bedroom. She kind of helped as far as being there and that the uncle and nephew were involved. It's, it was, to watch the video, it's just horrible. I mean, uh, the uncle would shoot the guy several times. Oh, jeez. And he's like, so this Korean guy is like laying on the floor by the register, and they're actually standing on him trying to get that register to get open. Oh, good lord. And then he'd yell for his nephew, and he would jump over the counter, and then he'd also be like shooting this guy several times until he finally died, because he was moaning there for a while. And oh. of course, and the way that the, Chicago was amazing, the police department, so this, this Korean store owner, uh, had two video cameras so he had a store worker who was also in on it but he must not have trusted her because he had another video camera to where he didn't tell his uh, associate about that camera so you can see these uh, these suspects are actually pulling out the vcr tape from the camera that she knew about but not but the not other the other one. one that was hidden which actually shows the whole crime in process so anyway, so then uh, the two detectives from Chicago came up and did their interviews, and, and they got their confession. So now you got to fast forward in 2004 to where now you've got this uh, unknown Hispanic female buried in a uh, shallow grave outside of August. Now, I had just gotten back from Iraq, and I guess you can kind of say this is a god crumb too. So Sharon's mom was living with us in the basement, and before I went to Iraq in 03, actually then 02, early 02 in Kuwait, uh, her mother said, don't worry about it, Ryan. I'm not going to die until you get back. Well, <clears throat> so we've got like a month left in Iraq before we get to go home, but I get this red cross, I get this red cross message, and my colonel says, hey, Ryan, uh, it's not like your mother-in-law is going to die. <clears throat> So they put me on a flight. So I, I get on a, um, a Sherpa, and they fly me to uh, Ali Asalim, and then they drive me over to the Kuwaiti airfield. And I'm I'm looking like garbage. I mean, I've got my uh, uniform that I had on out in the field and all that, and I hadn't taken a shower, didn't shave. And this is where the uh, USO is so great. I mean, so I, before I fly out of Kuwait, somebody at the USO says, hey, we heard about what happened here. Um, we're going to clean you up. So I got to take a shower. They can clean clothes. And then, of course, I get on a plane. And then, so when I arrived in, in Atlanta, and I didn't know that Bonnie had, Bonnie had died. So I call Sharon. You take your time. Take your time. So I call Sharon and say, hey, I just arrived. And Sharon said, her mother just died. But it's the way that it went down is, I guess you can call it a god crime, I guess. So uh, Bonnie had almost promised that she wouldn't die until I got home. So my oldest son pretended to be me and said, uh, hey, Bonnie, it's Ryan. I'm home. And then she died. So that happened when I was in Atlanta. So then I, I flew from Atlanta to uh, Kansas City insurance picked me up and then so now I'm back in in Kansas so that would have been 
Uh, when did your mom die? The 13th of September? Yeah. No, August. August. So then, you know, I, I hadn't really processed out yet, so they gave me like two weeks of emergency leave to take care of um, family affairs with Sharon's mom. And then I go to uh, Camp Atterbury to start processing out. And so when you, when you process out, so my unit hadn't even come, come home yet. They're still over in Iraq. Right. I mean, I got to come home early. Uh, thank God, uh, Bonnie, for letting me come home early for dying, I guess, for the reason. But um, so now I process out of Camp Atterbury. And so I know I had like 30 days leave left before I had to go back to work at Raleigh County. And that's when, I guess, when they found the body buried in the grave. Can I, I, call. Can I interrupt there? Sure, go ahead. Uh, how did they find the body. Oh, so I guess you can say this is kind of a god crumb as well. So she's been in the shallow grave. I think they estimate she might have, because he had a, he was a, a National Guard and he had drill weekend and the dates I might be a little off. It's like the 17th or 18th of uh, September is where he, we believe that he, he went home for drill and then picked up uh, his ex-girlfriend and then brought her to uh, Ogden and then killed her and then buried her in a, in a shallow grave along with his uh, one-year-old son. So she's in the shallow grave and I guess, I think it was what, October is when they, they uh, found her body, so there was a hunter. So if you go down K-18 at the time, and I forgot, or is it Road 54 or whatever it was, you go down that gravel road and there's like this lone house around the corner and if you start heading west, finally comes to a dirt road. I think the railroad uses that road to do maintenance on the track. She was buried across from the uh, dirt road near where the track's at. And so the hunter's actually walking down the dirt road and he happens to see this this arm sticking out of the ground with, oh, with the hand. So he calls the police. And of course, uh, Detective Arnaker goes out there to process the scene. Grubbs is out there, I believe. And then that's when I get the call that I wanted to come into work. You know, I just pretty much was still in that uh, military leave. And I said, sure. And so when I arrive at the scene, they haven't found the, uh, the child yet. Uh, Reinker's still kind of working on uh, excavating for evidence around the, the female. Obviously, she's blackened, decomposed. And I remember they cut off her hand. And I want to say it was like the right hand. It's, it's been so long. And another detective, we put the, the hand into a bag. But it wasn't the, it was the police that cut off her hand. Yeah, it wasn't. I think it was probably Reinker that probably uh, slipped away the uh, tenants of the, the hand. And, so and I know that our listeners are going to say, and I know the reason, but can you explain why did they cut off the hand? Well, we didn't have any ID. I mean, uh, at the time, I think she was totally nude. And uh, there was no wallet, no purse, nothing around. But I think the... When they were looking at the decomposed fingers, they could see what looks like fingerprints. So they thought they could hydrate the decomposed skin to uh, get some fingerprints. So the hand was put into a bag, and Detective Sonia Gregoire drove the, uh, the hand out to KBI so they could hydrate it and then ink it and then see if we can ID her. So I guess if you want to look into God crumbs, I mean, apparently a coyote, I believe, or some kind of a wild animal, must have smelt the decaying inside the, uh, the shallow grave. Mm-hmm and had dug up just enough to where, and I guess maybe the coyote, whatever, was dragging on the, the fingers of the hand and brought the arm out, but realized it probably pretty nasty, so the wild animal or the coyote must have just left and didn't uh, continue to, to gnaw on it. Right. Now, I kind of got the impression, if I recall, that had that hand or arm stayed out any much longer out in the elements, it probably would have just decomposed completely and we'd have lost the latent the prints. fingerprints, yeah. So, obviously, we're able to hydrate and they got some fingerprints, and then they ID'd her, and there's another part of the God, God crumbs, because had she never been in trouble when she was 14, she would have been forever a Jane Doe. So the way I understood it, she was in 
we'll just say kind of an area of Chicago where there's some uh, gang activity and I think the police had responded to a, a situation out there and I think she threw a bottle or something at one of the police officers and she got arrested at 14. So they had her fingerprints. Had her fingerprints. And that's how we got her identified. Holy moly. Now and getting guess... back to the Chicago story with the Korean uh, store owner. So yeah. I already knew these two Chicago detectives. And so we had her identified so we knew who she was. But now we wanted to know what else of her involvement. So I think I spoke to the Lopez or Bush and I said, hey, uh, can you do a background check on uh, this gal to see what else can pull up? So when she was 16, she got pregnant from her boyfriend. And now in Chicago, 16, you can't consent. It's, it's kind of like, you know, in Kansas, if you're 15 and under, you can't consent to have sex. So, you know, it would have been like a rape charge. Right. So there was an information report filed but there were no actually charges to it. So apparently her aunt had uh, filed the report with the Chicago police, and that's how we got the name of her boyfriend, who apparently was living in Ogden at the time. So the baby was his baby then? Correct. Later we did the DNA, and it turned out to be his son. So this gal was only, what, 18? I think 19? she was 17. When, so she was at a... Um, uh, women's home in Chicago, and uh, apparently he, uh, when he was on his drill, he went ahead and picked her up and brought her back to Kansas. Good grief. And he was actually just, he was tried and found guilty. And then they uh, had an appeal, and, and then they uh, had to have a second trial, and he was found guilty the second time on lesser charges. I think it was still first degree on the child, and then manslaughter on the, his ex-girlfriend. His girlfriend, and that was just recently, actually. Wasn't like, it? Yeah, a couple of years ago, because I was working at K State Police when I had to testify the second time. So, okay, I'm just going to move on from there because anytime any child, especially a child, gets killed, that just really bothers me big time, as I'm sure it does you also. Is there any other interesting case, I guess, that? You would like well, to. then there was a case, and again, I'll just use Tom as the name. So uh, another 17-year-old kid was uh, down in Aggieville and got into a dispute with some soldiers, and I think there might have been like a little bit of pushing going on. And, and the 17-year-old had like a blue bandana, if I recall, and I think the, uh, the older soldier went ahead and, and grabbed the bandana. And then so the, uh, we'll say Tom had left Aggieville and and then came back with a steak knife and was looking for the soldiers. And the, yeah. the soldier that he got to dispute with, he went ahead and took his little steak knife and stabbed him in the stomach. And I guess he must have hit a main artery down there because apparently, uh, he, I mean, he just died almost instantly and just, just bled out. So I get called in for that one. And as I'm investigating the case, you know, I'm being told that, yeah, they, they see this kid running up towards uh, back when we had Hardy's back then. Mm -hmm. And I think somehow we were able to identify a vehicle and, and somebody else and then talking to that person, and he was probably 15 or 16. He was also a, a young kid. He finally gives up the name of Tom, and then he finally gives up the name of Tom's last name, and then I'm actually very familiar who, who Tom who this is. And so uh, my captain at the time says, well, Ryan, you still want to work this case because of, I'm very familiar who this Tom guy is. That's all sure. And then so we go ahead and go to, to this residence, and I make contact with the uh, his grandfather, and I said, hey, we need to talk to Tom about this case here, and there's a situation down in Aggieville, and we bring the granddad and, and the kid down, and, and this is like probably the one time that anyone has ever been so truthful and gave a complete confession as far as what happened. I mean, there was just no deviation, uh, no trying to change the facts, and, and so he admits to what had happened. And then when we finally go to court, they hire a pretty good attorney. And obviously, well, before we even go to court, I guess here's the guy that comes. So now we'll say days after the uh, 
when he's been arrested, Joyce, who was like the clerk at the time, hands me over this pile of pawn tickets, which in Riley County and detectives, we normally just like go through the pawn tickets and see if there's anything interesting. And I happen to see the soldier's name. It's like, wow. And he just bought a gun like maybe just a week before. And there was no mention of anything about a gun on now the this soldier. this is the soldier that had been yeah, killed. Yeah, this would be the victim that uh, was stabbed. And so I, I called his unit and I said, hey, Tom apparently bought a gun like a week before. Is this gun in the uh, vault with the unit by any chance? And they said, no, nah, nah. he doesn't have the gun in the, in the unit vault. So then I think we contacted the CID, and I got to go out there with them, and we were able to check his room, and apparently there was, there was no gun there in the room. But at the time when he got stabbed, there was two other soldiers. So I'm talking to the CID. I said, well, can we bring those two other soldiers in so we can re-interview them? And so when they bring these two soldiers in, we happen to have his uh, a staff sergeant as well. So I've got these two young soldiers plus his staff sergeant, and then we're able to go down to the Manhattan Police Department. And so I think I talked to the staff sergeant, and actually I think I talked to him last, because he's like really trying to sit there and interrupt and then trying to shut this thing down. Mm-hmm. So when I talked to these two other younger soldiers, I let them know that, look, guy, you're not in any kind of trouble. No one said you took any part as far as what happened, as far as the stabbing and all that. I just want to know, I heard the guy that got stabbed had a gun. And I forgot which one gave it up first, but he said, yeah, when he got stabbed, he reached behind the small of his back and pulled his gun out. And he was going to shoot the 70-year-old, but then he just collapsed. And so they finally admitted that they picked up the gun and took it, I think it was a Jeep, they took it to the Jeep and they hid it. And so then later, they give that gun to that staff sergeant and they hide it at his house. The staff sergeant had the yeah, gun? Yeah, I, I believe. I mean, it's been so long since I've read that oh, report, but okay. I'm pretty sure that the staff sergeant had the so then I talked to the kid, kind of gives the same story that, yeah, you know, he pulls the gun out, but he didn't shoot because he collapsed. Now, keep in mind, when I spoke to the 17-year-old, he had no idea about the gun. Never saw it. Once he stabbed him, he turned around and just ran. There was just no mention of the gun. So now right. when I talked to the staff sergeant, he finally does agree that, yes, I'll go get the gun at the house and I'll bring it to you guys. So then we actually recovered the gun. So I think when I went to trial... That was like a very important fact where the jury acquitted the uh, 17-year-old of, oh. of the, the murder charge. He was acquitted. He was acquitted. He was found not guilty. Okay. Now, it's because I've known this person since he was a young child. I mean, he used to play basketball with my kids. So it never really bothered me all that much. And so years later, I mean, when I come back from Iraq, I happened to see his mom walking down the street with that little girl or little child. And I said, hey, is, is that your baby? And she's like, no, that, that's Tom's uh, daughter. I think it was a, a girl. It's like, oh, wow, so uh, he's got a daughter. And then even when we moved from our old house to our new house, Mm -hmm. I saw him out in the street, and we actually chatted and talked. Has a great job, great family, and, you know, we shook hands and hugged, and, I mean, the guy really turned his life around. That's one of the good things. Wow, can we end on that positive note? Okay. (laughs) Let's do that. All right. (laughs) Well, first of all, I want to thank you for doing this interview. I know that our listeners are going to find this very intriguing. And I also want to thank you for your time, not only in the military, but also in all the police fields that you've covered. Thank you for that. Well, you got to thank Sharon. She won't put up with me. So. Well, I wanted to thank Sharon, but she's <laughs> left the room. <laughs> so I, I know it's very hard to be married to somebody like that also. Thank you, Ryan for everything. I think this will turn out just great. All right. Cheers. Okay, cheers.